If you will, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 3 today. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 3. We are working through the book of Matthew, I think probably for the rest of this year. Probably is what it will take. We are looking at Matthew chapter 3 today. Last week we looked at Matthew chapter 2 and saw God's hand at work and His provision and protection over His Son, Jesus Christ, at His birth. And it was a rich, deep gospel message there. Matthew chapter 3. If you will stand with me as we read God's Word, let's, let's hear from God. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word. And even in this short passage, just these three verses, Lord, there is so much there for us to hear from you. Lord, you sent your servant John the Baptist to proclaim boldly a clear message of the gospel, a clear message of repentance because the kingdom of heaven was now and that Jesus was on the scene. And I pray, God, this morning you would speak to us in your word, that you would remind us of what this gospel message is and what it means for John to say, repent. I pray, God, that your spirit would speak to each person here today. Those who know you, I pray, Lord, that they would be reminded of repentance. Those who do not know you, Father, I pray that you would lovingly teach them that your kingdom is here and that repentance is called for. So, God, let this time be for you. Speak boldly. Let us hear intently. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat, please. The month of January is not over. The month of January is always this time for new resolutions. How many people have already broken their New Year's resolution before January is over? Nobody's, I see some grins. They're not confessing loudly, but I can see through the facial expressions. I mean, I mean uh, we, we make resolutions. And why do we do this? It is, it, it's like the calendar is a gift to us in that there's a reset every year. And even now in 2020, not only is it a new year, it's also a new decade. A new time to change. The desire for change can be good. As a matter of fact, the desire for change is often necessary. I'm not saying that change is always good because sometimes change leads to destruction. Maybe you should have just stayed put. But change can often, can often be for the good and is often necessary. And at this time of year, especially in January, as we've got this on our minds, I think Matthew chapter 3, these first three verses here, are timely for us to connect our mindset into what John the Baptist is proclaiming here. He's proclaiming the need for change, a restart. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What John the Baptist is doing here is he's proclaiming a new era is beginning. There's a new season ushered in, a new 
era is here. Not, and it, it is, it's also coming, yet it's already now. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, says in verse 1. Now, what's happened? Why is this significant? It's because by the time of John the Baptist, we must remember that God's voice had been silent for 400 years at this point. The last prophet that God had sent was Malachi. If you want to, turn with me to Malachi chapter 4. It's the last book of the Old Testament, probably just a couple of pages to the left in your Bible. Malachi chapter 4, this was the last voice from God before John the Baptist comes on the scene. Listen to these words from Malachi. We're just going to read all of chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will stumble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings." You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now verses 4, 5, and 6 reminds us and leads us into John the Baptist. Verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." So these were the last words of God through his prophet Malachi that people heard before God's voice went silent for hundreds of years. They were looking forward to the coming of Elijah the prophet because when Elijah the prophet comes again, then the great and awesome day of the Lord would be coming. And so this is what the Jewish people were looking for by the time that John the Baptist comes on the scene in Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist is seen here as the Elijah that was prophesied by Malachi. And if anyone knew the Old Testament prophecies well enough, they were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness, a crazy man wearing stinky animal skins, eating weird stuff that actually people probably pay $1,000 for now because it's healthy, honey, wild honey. And I think there's a movement now to go back and eat bugs, locusts. I think there is a movement for that, right? You nutrition people would probably be aware of the protein value of bugs or something. But God sends John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the last prophet before Christ. But there was a 400-year silence before John comes. And so God announces through Malachi that he would send Elijah to announce the fearsome day of the Lord. That The prophecy of the day of the Lord was not something to really look forward to because the day of the Lord was a day of judgment. 
I think we've talked about this. I think we talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night. Have you ever been that child where you were told you have to wait until your father gets home? Yeah. And the anxiety of the torture of waiting for the passing of judgment upon whatever sin you committed, that is worse than the spanking or the punishment that comes. And so here, Malachi, the last words from Malachi, the words of God himself was a prophecy of judgment and doom to come. The day of the Lord (laughs) would not be very exciting. But here... John the Baptist comes on the scene proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so John the Baptist is the prophet that's calling the people back to God after this long drought of hearing from the Lord. How many, all of us, if we walk the Christian life, if we are in Christ, there are times in the Christian walk, can we confess that we do not hear from God and it feels dry? Those are times where our faith is tested. Do you still trust the Lord even though he's silent? And John here is coming on the scene. He's proclaiming boldly. He's this herald coming out declaring that the kingdom is now and that the king is arriving. This was clearly a, a something that was connected to what um, uh, those in the monarchy still do today. If Queen Elizabeth were to show up in the United States, trust me, there would be an entourage of heralds preparing the way for the queen. Just like if President Donald Trump were to show up here in Cookville, I promise you that all of traffic in this county would be shut down because those people who are, they're doing their job. They're preparing the way for the great leader, the president, to come. That's what John the Baptist is doing here. He's clearing the path. He's preparing the way. He's proclaiming boldly. He's this herald that goes through the land declaring that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means that it is now. And this ministry of John the Baptist was a ministry of preparation for the king's arrival to clear the path for his ministry to be heard clearly. And what does John the Baptist say in verse 2? Repent. Now that's a word we don't hear in church anymore. We don't hear that word anymore. Because if we say the word repent, then we're mean. If we say the word repent, then we're we're, we're daring to declare that someone is not good I don't know about you, but if you have real, if people really do an honest soul searching, most people, if they're honest with themselves, will recognize that they are not good. Whenever they, whenever we have turmoil and strife in our lives and we have anxiety, if people are honest with themselves and they look deep within their souls, they realize that many of the problems they're facing are the problems that they are causing. It's not someone else's fault, it's mine, if you're honest. doesn't mean that there's not any outside factors, there might be, but ultimately it boils down to how do I react to those circumstances? How do I react to those around me? Am I at fault here? Repent, for the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is at hand. What does this mean to repent? 
In the ancient thinking of, of Greek, because this was written in the Greek, in the ancient ways of thinking in the Greek, uh, the term meant simply to change one's mind or thinking. This was a word uh, that would have been used um, when you're trying to teach someone a lesson. I want you to change your mind about something. That's what the original meaning of this word would have been. But the biblical meaning of this word goes much deeper than just changing our mind. It goes much deeper than learning some new skill or some new thing in school. To repent in the, in the context of the Gospels goes much deeper. It's a, it's a biblical repentance that requires confession and change. Not just change of thinking, which is part of it, but it's a change of who we are as individuals. The change of the personhood, the change of our outlook, the change of our very essence and being. That's what repentance is. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so what does this look like? Let's first look at what repentance is not. Can we start there? Because unfortunately in our churches and in our vacation Bible schools and in in many of of our uh, curriculums that we teach in churches, I think we're doing people a disservice by watering down this understanding of repentance because we want to be nice. And I'm not here today to scare anybody. My intent today is not to cause people to tremble and feel bad about themselves. My intent is not to crush your self-esteem. God will do that on His own. If you're a Christian, you understand the love of God will crush your self-esteem all the time. Amen? Amen. I don't need to crush your self-esteem God's Holy Spirit will do that with gentleness and with mercy, but with necessity. Here's what repentance is not. Repentance is not admitting your sin. I want to bring that, and I want to look at some scriptures to see where that comes from. Repentance is not merely admitting your sin and nothing else. How many of us have gotten in trouble at home and said, well, yeah, I did it, I'm sorry, and admit that you did it, and that was it? How far does that go? If we have children who have disobeyed, if we have husbands who have disobeyed, and they admit their sin, is that enough? If they admit their wrong, is that enough? Because I don't know about you, but if someone offends me, and, and I mean, they rightly offend me. I mean, it's, it's wrong for them to do so, but they have really offended, and they are in the wrong. It's okay for them to admit that they are wrong, but what if they do the same thing again? And then again, and every time they do something wrong, well, yeah, I did it. I'm sorry. But they go and do it again. Yeah, I did it. I'm sorry. It's kind of the pattern of an abusive spouse on some on their spouse. Yeah, I, I beat you, but I'm sorry. And then they do it again. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I did it again. Yeah, I'm sorry. How far does that go? But when we think about repentance of sin, unfortunately, I think most people confuse repentance with just admission. Yes, God, I sinned. I'm sorry. And they go no further. 
Now, do we need to admit that we are sinners? Absolutely. That's the first step to change. And anything, you must first acknowledge and be aware of your fault. You have to be aware of that before change can happen. But if you only stop with admission, there is no change. So admission of sin is actually useless in a way. Admitting that I was wrong has, has no merit. Acknowledging or admitting my error does not change anything. The I got caught defense. Yeah, God, I'm sorry I'm sinner because I got caught in my sin. The child who gets caught with the hand in the cookie jar. Yeah, Mom, I'm sorry I got caught, but they're really not sorry because they're going to sneak and do it again. And again, and again. You see, the admission of sin, if not understood correctly, if the admission of sin does not lead to change, then it's merely, I got caught. I'm sorry. Look at the, a few examples here. If you, I mean, you want to write notes, you're welcome to. In the bulletin, I've given you room for notes if you wish to write this down. Exodus chapter 9, when Pharaoh, Pharaoh actually acknowledges his sin, to Moses and Aaron, Exodus chapter 9, verse 27. He actually acknowledges his sin to Moses and Aaron, but what does Pharaoh do in the Exodus? He never lets the people go. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 20, Achan admits his sin to Joshua, but there is no change. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 15. I do want to look at this. 1 Samuel 15. We want to look at... Uh, the King Saul, and his confession to Samuel. Now, we know that King Saul was a king that God established, but David was the king after God's own heart. And we know that Saul, part of Saul's problem was that he was self-serving. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now look here in verse 24. That's an admission of sin. You see what he's doing? Paul, I mean, Samuel, Saul even says to the prophet Samuel, this would be confession time. Saul is confessing. To the, word, to the man of God. I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. And then he gives a reason. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He's admitting his sin, but he's giving an excuse. I sinned because the people would have rebelled. It's not my fault. Verse 25, Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Now he's asking for pardon. Verse 26, and here's the response from God. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And you can continue to read here that Saul was begging for mercy, but he never got it. Why? Because his heart was not sincere. His confession, his admission of sin only stopped there. Didn't go any further. He made an excuse for his sin. He did not sincerely wish to change his life. He did not sincerely wish to change his ways or his attitude toward the Lord. His faith was not in God. His faith was in his own actions. It was as if it was a selfish regret 
I regret what I did. I do not repent from what I did. So what is John the Baptist speaking about here in Matthew chapter 3? He's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's not declaring, admit your sin for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's not calling the people to admittance. He's calling them to repentance. Big difference here. If repentance is just admission, it leads to nothing. But repentance, in the biblical understanding of repentance, is necessary. Repentance involves sorrow. Another word here that the Bible uses is contrition. We read this passage as our call to worship today, Psalm 51, particularly in verse 17. I want to, again, you could read all of Psalm 51 in connection with what Matthew is writing about John the Baptist. When John the Baptist says repent, this is what he means. There is sorrow throughout this entire psalm as David is writing this prayer and singing it to the Lord because of his sin with Bathsheba. Notice that David in this psalm is not giving excuse for his sin. He's coming to the throne of God himself and begging for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. These are the words of David in Psalm 51. So repentance involves a plea to God for mercy, a sincere call for forgiveness, ask, and just submitting to God's love in this. Contrition. So Psalm 51, verse 15. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, nor I would give it. You would not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. You see, the misunderstanding here of repentance too often is, this is my sacrifice to the Lord. What do I need to do, dear God, to earn your grace? What do I need to do to earn your forgiveness? What do I need to do to be a Christian? And the prayer of David here is exactly what John the Baptist is calling for. Number one, in verse 15, David is acknowledging, My lips must speak Your words, God, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. It's not my words of asking for repentance or forgiveness. It's not my words of repentance, dear God. It's your words coming through my heart, revealing my need for forgiveness. You are giving me in my heart a cry for mercy. Because, God, you do not delight in my, self, my self-serving sacrifice, in verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. If I could make it right, God, I would, but I can't. Only you can fix this, God. If that's the attitude of the heart, that is the attitude of repentance. If the attitude is, I am fixing this, I am saying the prayer, 
I am doing what I'm supposed to, if I am walking the aisle, if I'm saying the words, if I'm shaking the preacher's hand, if I make mama happy, then it's good. And that is a confession. How many people have come to the altar because mama has been praying rightly and you need to pray. Mamas, pray. Please, pray. But if you're coming to the altar because you want to make your mama happy, you're not coming to the Lord. There's nothing we can do to appease God's wrath. Verse 17 of Psalm 51, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. That is repentance. Repentance is contrition. Repentance is sorrow. Repentance is acknowledging the fact, I am broken. Because if you're broken... You can't really fix much of anything, can you? If you're broken, you're in need of repair. And the hands of the maker will repair the soul. This is a godly sorrow that is spoken of in Psalm 51. This is a godly sorrow that John the Baptist is calling for in Matthew chapter 3. When he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. The word of God here is calling us to acknowledge that the kingdom of heaven is here and we are to repent. We're going to look at this more in depth in the next couple of weeks as we work through chapter 3. We're going to unpack this fruit of repentance, what it looks like. But let's take a look here at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. The Apostle Paul helps us understand this repentance even deeper. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 9. Now Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. Now whenever Paul writes to the church in Corinth, it's usually not a good thing. They've usually done something in need of scolding. And this is another thing that Paul is writing about. But he's, he's, even in his scolding, Paul still encourages the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. This godly sorrow, the King James actually uses the words godly sorrow, is a grief. Sorrow is grief. And if God is producing within a soul this genuine sorrow and grief for their sin, then that is something that God is producing within the sinner who needs to listen and follow that calling of the Holy Spirit. They are produced, God is producing grief in me. Why? This godly sorrow leads to repentance. That is in contrast to worldly sorrow, worldly grief. Because look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly sorrow or worldly grief produces death. If our admission of sin is a selfish regret, that is a worldly sorrow that does not lead to salvation. It's more of a, oops, I got caught. 
But it is only the Holy Spirit that can lead anyone to a genuine godly sorrow. Now, how does this happen? Clearly, the Holy Spirit works in ways that we do not see. The Holy Spirit works in ways that are mysterious to us. But the Holy Spirit also works through fellow Christians who speak into the lives of the sinners. God will use you to bring someone to godly sorrow and grief if we as godly Christians listen to the Spirit as well. But we do that through love, through compassion, honesty. Friend, I love you, and I'm worried about you. There's a Savior who loves you too, and He saved me, and He'll save you. And there's a genuine, sincere calling to repentance. Wow. How many people have that testimony that someone loved you enough and prayed with you and hugged you even through the sorrow and the griefs and the snot and the sneezing and the, and the tears and everything else when you're, when you're really repentant of your grief and you're emotional about it and someone is right there with you and they hold your hand and they pray with you and there's joy? Wow. I mean, that is just amazing how God uses His people to bring sinners to repentance. And it is a beautiful process that we do not orchestrate, but God is through His Holy Spirit. It's an amazing thing. Even when someone is sorrowful about their sin and they're repentant, it is a beautiful act of the Lord. Biblical repentance means more than merely feeling bad about one's sin. Um, we see this in, in Matthew chapter 19, the rich young ruler who felt guilty, who came to God, came to Jesus Christ. He felt guilty about his sin, but when Jesus spoke the truth to him about what he needed to give up, he just did not follow through. Judas was sorrowful. We see that in Matthew 27. Judas, the betrayer of Christ, was sorrowful for his actions. We read that in Matthew 27, verses 3 through 10. But was he repentant? And I think that's the difference here. Repentance, then, involves and leads to genuine conversion. And this is something here at Sovereign Grace that we, we speak about often, and even today in our membership class, this was the topic. And I started the membership class with a, a disclaimer that I did my sermon prep before looking at the book that we're going through on genuine conversion. I did not get my sermon from the book. I got it from the Word of God. <laughs> okay. It's amazing how God orchestrates these things. And so as members of, of Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, we always ask people, about their conversion. Is it genuine? Or did you just pray a prayer for somebody someday when you were a child or you're just coming to church, but you've never known that Holy Spirit-directed godly sorrow and grief over your sin? If you've never experienced that, then let's continue to pray. For you. Let's continue to learn together. Let's continue to hear the Word of God together. Let's continue to hear the Gospel together. And let's pray that God would do the work in you that only He can do. And we will come right alongside you and guide you in this and be used by God in the process. 
to the point of conversion. See, repentance is just the first step. It's part of conversion. Repentance leads to conversion. That's why John the Baptist is calling for those to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus Christ is ushering in the opportunity and possibility of genuine conversion. We call this being born again. We call this being regenerated, being made new. If repentance is turning away from one thing into another, that's what conversion is. Conversion is turning from sin. Repentance is to be converted. And when we are turning from sin, we're turning to something else. We're not just turning around and staring at a blank wall. God is not asking us to turn away from our sin and put our nose in the corner like a child. God is calling us to turn from our sin, and when we turn away from that, then we face directly God's love and His mercy. Isn't that amazing? And so this idea of repentance should never be seen as something that is a scare tactic. Because if calling someone to repentance terrifies them to the point that they never turn to God, we've spoken the wrong words. We've not spoken gospel sorrow. We've not spoken gospel truth. If we call someone to repent from their sin and all they do is go running away in fear and terror and put their nose in the corner because they're afraid and because they've been scolded to the point of abuse... We've not preached the gospel. Turning away from sin means turning to the love of God. And so if we call someone to turn from their sin, we need to emphatically say, God loves you. He wants to speak to you. He wants to change you. He wants to love you. But you've got to turn from the sin and face Him eye to eye, nose to nose, truth to truth. And when that happens, salvation comes. And it's beautiful. Salvation is here according to John. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's declaring that salvation is now. He's declaring that salvation is possible. And as we go through the chapter 3 here, we're going to unpack this over the next few weeks. John then contrasts this call for repentance with the arrogance of the rule keepers, those who kept the Mosaic law and took their pride from that. He's saying that's not repentance. He's calling them to repentance. Salvation is here. When, when John the Baptist is declaring the kingdom is at hand, he's preparing the way for the king to come. For this is, why, this is what it says in verse 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. This is Isaiah chapter 40. When John the Baptist is preparing the way for Jesus Christ, he's preparing a clear path because Jesus Coming is bringing salvation. Jesus is the hope that we need. Now we looked at this in Matthew chapter 1 during the Christmas time. Matthew chapter 1 verse 22. When Jesus is given His name, a name Jesus itself literally means that He will save His people from their sins. It's the old name of Joshua. Jesus is the Greek version of Joshua. That he will save his people 
from their sins. So Matthew, in Matthew chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, what he's declaring is that Jesus is here. Jesus is now. Amen? Is Jesus right here as we listen to His Word? Is Jesus right here in this room as fellow Christians gather to support one another and encourage one another and worship Him? Is Jesus here wherever you go? John the Baptist here has a pretty bold... He's proclaiming something that we as Christians are very complacent about. Are we proclaiming to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our classmates, to our family, to whoever we run in, are we declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we showing love and compassion through our lives so that they would see when they turn from their sin, they can turn to Christ and if need be, turn to us to help them? That's the gospel that John the Baptist is declaring is here. Amen? As we close our time together, here's what I want to ask us to do. We're not going to manipulate people through music because we don't have it. That's fine. But I do want, we have heard the word. And we can pray. And I want us to close in singing together this last hymn. And I want to ask if you have heard the words of God through this text. Do some soul searching. As you sing, as we sing collectively together, I'm not asking you to question your salvation. But if you clearly are honest with yourself, and I do not know Jesus Christ at all, and you're honest with that, and I don't know Him, oh, please, hear the words of God. Repent from your sin. Turn from the worldly sorrow and turn into the godly grief and sorrow that will open up your eyes and you will see the love of God clearly. Amen. Let's pray for that. If you've been walking with Christ for any length of time, I want to ask you just to use this time as we sing together as a prayer, really, together. Dear God, I love you. Do I love you genuinely? Is there anything I need to repent of? Is there anything I need to turn from? Let him reveal that to you. That's the life of the Christian. Christians don't turn from sin once and never see sin again. Trust me, it's it's an everyday battle. But we're constantly turning from sin back to the face of Christ. And that's the joy of the Christian life. And if you're not in that life, I'm, I'm going to invite you today. Today's a great day to turn from sin. Repent and turn to that light of Christ and just come into His mercy and His grace and love. And He loves you and He forgives you and He makes us new. And that's amazing, isn't it? Amen.